Job chapter 8 is where we're going to begin our study tonight. Job chapter 8. I don't have a bulletin with me. They run out very quickly on Sunday. But um, I believe what we have tomorrow night. I, uh, let me see how I do, okay? You remind me if I miss anything, all right? <laughs> um, on tomorrow night is the grief share, surviving holidays. So I want to remind you that. And there was a flyer in. So invite somebody that you might know. Uh, it would be a blessing um, for and, and to be able to help. And they're going to receive 30 devotionals that's going to help them during the holiday seasons um, in, in their grief. So uh, tomorrow night at 7 o'clock. And then Saturday, Koinea Fellowship, right? The Sanders are hosting. So potluck, it starts at 6. And uh, maps and address and phone number, everything is in the bulletin. And then on Sunday... Uh, we'll have our 8.30, 10.30 service. We're going to be in that section of John's Gospel, which is the Upper Room Discourse. And the Upper Room Discourse is chapters 13 through 17, where Jesus is in his final hours before he goes and begins the sufferings of the cross. And, um, and also, we see his last dinner with his disciples. So, very rich portion of Scripture Again, 8.30 and 10.30 are service times. Just to remind you once again, as we've made the announcement, that starting in January, January 11th, um, we're going to go to three Sunday morning services, 8, 9.30, and 11. So we'll get more information on that and uh, as we get organized for that. Um, on Wednesday nights, uh, we are going to uh, be in Job next week. And then two weeks from tonight is Thanksgiving Eve. It's hard to b believe that it's almost upon us. But it is, so we're going to have a, a short service, a time of worship. I'll do a short teaching. I promise it'll be short. It'll be a family service, and so the kids will be in here with us, and a nursery will be provided if you choose to use the nursery. And then uh, what we're going to do is have a time, a pie social afterwards. So if you'd like to bring a pie to share, uh, that would be wonderful. And if you can pre-cut those, any kind of pie that you want to bring uh, would be wonderful. So... Um, we always have a great time. It's one of my favorite services, not just because of the pies. That makes it great. But also because of the fellowship that we have. So invite somebody out. Also, uh, sometimes people ask, what do we do with any extra pies that we have? Any extra pies that we have um, that uh, are left over, that are kind of left here, I take them down to the uh, sheriff's office and uh, I will be giving them to the deputies there in the jail that have to work for Thanksgiving. They work 12-hour shifts, and uh, so um, I'll be taking them down there. And then also this year, if there's a few extra ones, I want to take them down to dispatch as well. And uh, so the guys in dispatch that have to cover the phones and 911 calls and all of that, um, they just love it when we're able to do that. And then the kids are going to start December to remember on Wednesday, starting after Thanksgiving, and they do certain things, and they just love it, and um, we'll get more information on that, and they're putting that all together, uh, but one of the Wednesdays, what they do is they make baskets of cookies to take down there as well to the first responders, so they enjoy doing that, little thank you notes and things like that, so that's what we do with the extra pies on Thanksgiving Eve, so everything will be eaten, everything will be used, all right, so but bring a pie if you'd like, and uh, we're going to have a great time. Also, starting on Monday, OCC Collection Week. So uh, if you can help, please look at that sheet uh, that Gail has out there uh, for times so that you can help. 
And uh, 17th through the 24th, that's a Monday through a Monday, uh, Monday before Thanksgiving. And thousands of shoe boxes are going to be coming in. On Sunday, you can bring your shoe box here that, that you've put together. And we're going to put them on the front here. And we're going to have just kind of a dedication uh, Sunday as we're going to pray for the week and for the ministry that's going to take place. So it's an exciting time of year, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> you guys are still cold, huh? So it is. It's a wonderful time of the year, and uh, we're looking forward to it, and then we'll get into the Christmas season. But tonight we do want to get into um, our study of Job. Did I miss anything? Anyone? All right, I'm good. Father, we ask that you bless this time, the study of your word. And I'm thankful for those who have come out and and Lord, um, we desire to right now gain from a book that can be difficult to read and study at times. It gets heavy. It, it uh, is a subject, suffering, that is not uh, the most um, uplifting subject to talk about. But Lord, you do have things for us to learn and to gain from and to, um, Lord, just be able to, to know that you love us and you are with us and uh, your promises are true for us. So, Lord, bless this time. I also pray to bless the youth as they're hearing about um, the China trip from Ashley. She's showing them slides that it would stir their hearts concerning missions and, and serving you. So I thank you for the kids that are here tonight as well and, and for the younger ones that are having their lessons. And I'm just so thankful for every single person that is here tonight. So we just give you this time in a study of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. So in our study of Job, what we have seen is Job, of course, going through tremendous loss in his sufferings as he's lost his children, his servants, his wealth. He's lost everything. Um, and we know that his health was afflicted as well as he has boils all over him. And as we uh, have looked at that, Job in the ash heap, uh, their mourning, and his three friends come along and they sit with him for seven days. And then Job, as we saw in chapter 3, begins his complaint. He d despises the day of his birth. And then Eliphaz begins to speak. And he's the first one that speaks. And Eliphaz was pretty brutal, pretty harsh on Job, uh, implying that, Job, you must have sinned. You must have done something uh, to uh, have this come upon you. And that's the implication that he cl clearly gave in chapter 4. So the next three chapters, which we covered last time, Job is just expressing his, his sorrow. He gives his complaint before the Lord. He's looking to be vindicated. He, he wonders if God is against him. And these are very familiar themes that we're going to see that Job's going to continue to bring up. And what we will see that Job is going to be really, because remember, he's, he is uh, hurting very deeply, and he's got deep sorrow. He speaks about how heavy his sorrow is. And whenever we go through grief and sorrow, it is very heavy, isn't it? It's just like this heaviness, and that's what he's experiencing, and he's hurting, and he's confused, and he's wondering, and all these emotions that are going through Job. So we see that he says a great statement of faith one moment, and then there's doubting the next, and he's a little bit on a roller coaster ride that he's on, which understandably we see as he's trying to, to 
process all of this that is going on. Plus, with his friends coming along and, and giving him counsel, he's going to end up calling them miserable counselors because they give the implication that you have done something wrong. You've sinned. You offended God somehow, and you need to repent. So as we go into chapter 8 here, we see the second uh, of his friends are going to speak, Bildad. And Bildad is more harsh and brutal than Eliphaz was. And we're going to see that as we get into it. You can call him Bildad the Brute, really, as you see what it is that he says. So he's answering Job as Job laid out his complaint before the Lord. And in chapter 8, Bildad speaks. In verse 2, he says, How long will you speak these things? And the words of your mouth be like a strong wind. In other words, uh, you're just blowing hot air, Job. And does God subvert judgment, or does the Almighty pervert justice? If your sons have sinned against him, he has cast them away for their transgression. If you would earnestly seek God and make your supplication to the Almighty, if you were pure and upright, surely how he would awake for you and prosper your rightful dwelling place. Though your beginning was small, yet your latter end would increase abundantly. So Bildad, as he speaks, he begins to blast away. He says, listen, Job, you have sin, and uh, your kids sin, and you need to confess your sin. If you are righteous, God would defend you, and he would bless you. So he's saying, really to Job in this section here, how dare you challenge the justice of God? And as we look at these guys as they speak and build that here in this section, at, at times their theology is right. We know that God is a just God. He is a just God, and, and his judgments are right and true. Matter of fact, we know that in Revelation chapter 19, right before the second coming of Jesus Christ, that we will all say as we're in heaven, and right before Jesus comes back, that we are going to declare that righteous and true are your judgments, O God. He is a just God. His decisions are right, and they are true. We're not going to be saying, oh, you're a God of injustice, or your decisions, your judgments are not true and righteous, Lord. No, we're going to be saying righteous and true are your judgments, O Lord. And we know that God is a just God, and that's what he is declaring. But what we see here, he's wrong in what he is saying and implying that if you are pure and upright, you're going to automatically prosper, as he says in verse 6. Now, that's not necessarily true. We know that there is blessing with being a child of God, but Job in chapter 1, he was called by God, what? Blameless and upright. And yet he's going through this affliction here. So here is Bildad saying, because you're going through affliction, you are not, you know, blameless and upright. I, I've watched this, and he continues to speak. He says, I've seen that from my own experience, verse 8, for inquire, please, of the former age, and consider the things discovered by their fathers. For we were born yesterday and know nothing, because our days on earth are a shadow. Will they not teach you and tell you and utter words from their heart? So, Job, you should remember the wisdom from our past elders. Now, Job being the oldest book of the Bible, and very well this is taking place even before Abraham comes on the scene. So if that is true, which most scholars believe that it is, uh, that this is only about 300 years after the worldwide flood. 
And what he's talking about is you should learn from our past elders. He's, he's looking at that what has God shown? God has shown that when there is wickedness, he floods the earth, he judges the earth. The wickedness covered all of the earth, and so a worldwide flood would come. So he's misapplying that, that this automatically means that, Job, that you're wicked. you got to learn from your past elders. Look what has happened already in this world, and that perhaps is where he's getting this philosophy uh, and his theology from, uh, is what had happened 300 years uh, before here of Job in the worldwide flood. But we continue in verse 11, that can the papyrus grow up without a marsh and can the reeds flourish without water while it is yet green and not cut down it withers before any other plant so are the paths of all who forget god and the hope of the hypocrite shall perish in verse 14 whose confidence shall be cut off and whose trust is the spider's web he leans on his house but it does not stand he holds it fast but it does not endure he grows green in the sun and his branches spread out in the, his garden he he his roots that is wrap around the rock heap and look for a place in the stones if he is destroyed from his place then they will deny him saying i have not seen you so the law of cause and effect applies to nature is what bildad is saying so as it applies to nature it's going to apply to you job if a plant doesn't get water it withers and it dies as he's explaining that in verses 11 through 13 uh, he's saying here that so are in verse 13 the past of all who forget god and, and and the hope of the hypocrite shall perish how these words must have really hurt job hearing this from bildad that that you forgot about God. And he's going to later on, these guys are going to accuse Job of being arrogant and, and just self-sufficient and not caring about God. And in a way, that's what he's saying. You forgot God. You're a hypocrite. There's no hope for the hypocrite. And that would hurt Job very much in the, the situation that he's in and the grieving that he's going through. So he's really blasting away. So Job, you're all withered up. So there has to be a cause. And if you uproot a plant, it will die. You've been uprooted, so there's a cause. And no one pulls up a good plant and let it be wasted. So Job, you must have done something that God would uproot you. We also hear, as I look at verse 15, he leans on his house, but it does not stand. He holds it fast, but it does not endure. Here he's talking about Job. Here you're self-sufficient. You're a hypocrite. You forgot about God. And you lean on a house and, and it you know, doesn't stand. It does remind me of what Jesus told us in Matthew chapter 7. He said that we are to be the wise man, that here's the sayings of mine, Jesus said, is like the one who builds his house upon the firm foundation. And when the storms come, that house is able to stand. But don't be like the fool who hears my words and does not do them. He's likened the one who builds that house uh, upon uh, the sand. And when the rains and the storm comes, that great is the fall of that house. So we do want to hear the words of the Lord. We want to do them. We want to build our house upon the rock, that is. So when the storms come in life, we're able to stand. We need to stand on the promises of God, stand on the rock Jesus Christ. But here he, he's misapplying again that Job, that you haven't 
been wise. You haven't followed the Lord. You did something wrong. Misapplying this to Job's situation. Uh, the, again, the implication very clearly is that you have sinned. So verse 19, behold, this is the joy of his way, and out of the earth others will grow. Behold, God will not cast away the blameless, nor will he uphold the evildoers. He will yet fill your mouth with laughing and your lips with rejoicing. And those who hate you will be clothed with shame, and the dwelling place of the wicked will come to nothing. So God promises of blessing the blameless. So just get right with God, Job, and you'll come to a place of joy in laughing. And again, uh, verse 21, he misapplies this to Job's situation here. In chapter 9 now, Job's going to answer. He's going to give a response as we read in verse 2. Truly I know it, it is so, but how can a man be righteous before God? If one wished to contend with him, he could not answer him. One time out of a thousand, God is wise in heart and mighty in strength, who has hardened himself against him and prospered. He removes the mountains and they do not know. When he overturns them in his anger, he shakes the earth out of its place and its pillars tremble. He commands the sun and it does not rise. He seals off the stars. In verse 8, he alone spreads out the heavens and treads on the waves of the sea. And he made the bear Orion, the Pleiades, in the chambers of the south. He does great things past finding out, verse 10. Yes, wonders without number. If he goes by me, I do not see him. If he moves past, I do not perceive him. If he takes away, who can hinder him? Who can say to him, what are you doing? God will not withdraw his anger. The allies of the proud lie prostrate beneath him. And so here is Job. He Truly, as he says, I know it is so. And, and I think that Job starts out being gracious and is agreeing with Bildad and some of the general premises that he has made, that God does reward the righteous and he judges sinners. But then verse 2, Job says, how can a man be righteous before God? And I think that in this situation here, and what Job means is that if I have not been righteous enough to escape the judgment of God, who, then who can be? Again, he was blameless. He was upright. And what Job is doing at this point is he really, he's looking for vindication is what he's looking before God. Now, when it does come to salvation, the only way that we can be righteous before God is not in our own works. It's not in our own efforts, is it? We're only righteous before God as we come to him in faith. Our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, yielding to him, believing in what Jesus has done for us and dying on the cross and believing that Jesus has rose from the grave and coming to him in faith and, and calling out to him for salvation and forgiveness of sin. So as he, he's saying, who can be righteous before God? In verse 3, can't, you can't contend with God. You can't demand or contend or fight against God. Job realizes that. And he's really in these verses here as he's speaking of the majesty and the power of God. Uh, in verse 8, he treads on the waves of the sea. Uh, he made the bear, the Orion, the Pleiades, and uh, they created the heavens there. And he continues in verse 14 of chapter 9. How then can I answer him and choose my words to reason with him? For though I were righteous, I could not answer him. I would beg mercy of my judge. If I called and he answered me, I would not believe that he was listening to my voice. For he crushes me with a tempest and multitudes 
uh, multiplies, that is, my wounds without cause. He will not allow me to catch my breath, but fills me with bitterness. If it is a matter of strength, indeed, he is strong. And if of justice, who will appoint my day in court? Though I were righteous, my own mouth would condemn me. Though I were blameless, it would prove me perverse. So Job begins to say, how can I present my case to God? How can I answer a mighty God? And in verse 20, he felt like there was nothing that he could do to gain the approval of God. Though I was righteous, he says, my own mouth would would condemn me. If I were blameless, it would prove me perverse. He feels like there's no way I can gain the approval of God. You know, there's a lot of Christians that go through their walk with the Lord that really struggle with this. They really struggle with, do I have the approval of God? So what they do is they begin to focus on duty. They begin to focus, if I do these things, and and I do this, and I do it just right, then I'll gain the approval of God. One of the things that we're singing about is God's love for us tonight. And that I want you to know that as a child of God, for you who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, that you have the approval of God. And will you live in that and rest in his love for you? One of the things that we're going to read in we open up that upper room discourse in John chapter 13. Jesus is with his last hours with his disciples before he goes to the cross. And a lot of things happen that night. Uh, The disciples are with him and they're troubled in their heart because Jesus said, don't be troubled. We know that they're confused. They're, They're wondering what's going on and where are you going? We don't know the way and show us the father. And, and Jesus is saying, one of you is going to betray me and, and, and all of you are going to make to run away and scatter this night. And and this is, you know, the last night they have been with him for over three years, following him, watching him, listening to him teach. And they're still confused about what's going on. But in chapter 13, when it starts, you know, that upper room discourse as Jesus is celebrating Passover and he says that he loved his disciples. And then it says something at the end of verse one that I have underlined in my Bible that it, John that would write that he loved them to the end. And I want you to know something, that he loves you, and he's going to love you to the end. Jesus didn't say, well, he loved them this night, but now these knuckleheads, I'm so frustrated with them. They're so confused. They don't know what's going on. Uh, Forget you guys. No, he speaks of his love for them. And he says he loved them to the end, and he's going to love you to the end. He's not going to stop loving you. And sometimes we think, I've got to gain the approval of God. I've got to do this. I've got to do that. I've got to do this. Rather than just resting in his love, and then out of love, that response comes that I am living for you. And you're going to do more out of that response of love for him and knowing that he loves you and living in that love than you ever could do out of a sense of duty. And here's the problem when it's duty and not devotion, That when it's just based on duty, you will always wonder, am I gaining the approval of God? Is it good enough that he demonstrated his love for you, proved his love for you, that while we're yet sinners, Christ died for us, Romans chapter 5. We need to take that and just tuck it into our hearts and realize that you have proved your love for me, Lord. You love me enough to go to the cross, and I know that you're going to love me to the end, and I have your approval. 
So live in that, rejoice in that, and respond out of that. And just enjoy the Lord. And you will do more for Him and have that joy and peace in your heart than you ever can in trying to earn His love and you know, approval. You have His approval. And so Job here is struggling here. There's nothing I can do to gain the approval of God, is what he's saying. In verse 21, I am blameless, yet I do not know myself. I despise my life. It is all one thing. Therefore, I say he destroys the blameless and the wicked. If the scourge slays um, suddenly, he laughs at the plight of the innocent. The earth is given into the hand of the wicked. He covers the faces of its judges. If it is not he, who else could it be? Job, in verse 23, feels like that God doesn't care. He, he likes or delights in seeing people go through difficulty. Again, he, he's on this roller coaster, and he's mostly down, and it's getting worse. And Job, he, he talked about the justice of God, and, and, and now, as we see that he's saying here, that really God, he's accusing God of injustice to innocent people. You see, in this chapter, he's declaring the greatness of God, but he doesn't know the goodness of God. The Lord wants us to realize the greatness of God, and that is to fear Him, to revere Him. He's a great and awesome God who created the heavens and the universe. Whenever you read the prayers of the saints in the Scriptures, all throughout the Scriptures, they always start out by talking about the greatness of God, the majesty of God. And Job has done that here in this chapter. But then they move in from the greatness of God to the goodness of God, don't they? You want to know the greatness of God, but also remember the goodness of God. As we sang tonight that God is good, and our Father is good, and He proved it by sending His Son to die on the cross for us. So Job doesn't understand the goodness of God and the character of God, uh, His love and, and His goodness and His faithfulness to us. And he's going to learn that by the end of the book. By verse 25, we read, Now my days are swifter than a runner. They flee away. They see no good. They pass like a swift ship, like an eagle swooping on its prey. If I say I will forget my complaint, I will put off my sad face and wear a smile. I am afraid of all my sufferings. I know that you will not hold me innocent. If I am condemned, why then... Do I labor in vain? If I wash myself with snow water and cleanse my hand with soap, yet you will plunge me into the pit, and my own clothes will abhor me. So Job is convinced that God's against him. There are those, again, that I've talked to that gone through life, they feel like that God is against me for some reason. They feel like God is out to get them. And remember this, but Paul would write in Romans chapter 8, if God is for us, who can be against us? And he goes on and he writes about how God is for us. That nothing can separate us from the love of God. And again, that's why it's important that we know what God's word declares to you and to me, his love for us and his goodness towards us and how he desires to work that goodness in our lives, that his promises are true for us. So Job here, he's wrestling with all this in verse 32. For he is not a man as I am, that I may answer him, and that we should go to court together. Nor is there any mediator between us who may lay his hand on us both. 
let him take his rod away from me and do not let dread of him terrify me. Then I would speak and not fear him, but it is not so with me. So Job says, is there a mediator for me? For me? Can I even speak? There's no one to, to help me with my case before God. The wonderful truth that we know from Scripture that there is one mediator. One mediator between man and God, and that is the man Christ Jesus, the righteous, right? He is our mediator. He's our advocate, our defense attorney. He is our redeemer, and he is our intercessor. He sits at the right hand of the Father, ever making intercession for you and for me. That's the good news. We have a mediator, Jesus Christ, who came and died for us, who paid the penalty for our sins, and now sits at the right hand of the Father and and. He intercedes on our behalf. So one mediator, and that is Jesus Christ. And here he, he's wondering, is there a mediator? Can I plead my case before God? And he continues in, in chapter 10. For my soul loathes my life. I will give free course to my complaint. I will speak in the bitterness of my soul. I will say to God, do not condemn me. Show me why you contend with me. And does it seem good to you that you should oppress, that you should despise the work of your hands and smile on the counsel of the wicked? So here is, he says in verse 1, you know, free course to my complaint. It's a, a grieving appeal to God's compassion is what it is. And in verse 2, why, uh, you know, Lord, why is this happening to me? You contend with me. And you've given me what a a wicked person deserves. And in verse 3, you smile on the wicked. He's really struggling. Why does it seem like the wicked that you smile on them? You know, Asaph had that problem. When you read in Psalm 73, and and I'll read a little bit to you. Asaph, 3,000 years ago, the psalmist, he's struggling with that same thing. He struggles with, you know, Lord, why does it seem like the wicked... Uh, prosper. It seems like they're getting away with things, and um, it can seem that way uh, in our own lives. Have um, perhaps you've gone through a time where you looked at somebody and you thought, you know, they're dishonest, they're they're vile, um, they're arrogant, and it seems like they just get away with everything, and they end up being, you know, gaining, uh, you know, in the world and uh, financially or whatever it might be. And we think, how can that happen, Lord? And here I am struggling, and and I lose out because I'm a Christian, it seems like. And Asaph was struggling with all that. And let me read it to you in Psalm 73. He begins and he writes, Truly God is good to Israel, to such are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the boastful when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. So here's Asaph. He's saying, man, it really, I really it, it stumbled me. When I see the prosperity of the wicked, I don't understand it. And he goes on and he describes the wicked. He says there's no pangs in their death and, and their strength is firm. And he goes on and he writes, their eyes bulge with abundance and they have more than heart could wish. They scoff and speak wickedly concerning oppression. They speak lawfully. They set their mouths against the heavens and their tongues walk through the earth. He's just talking about their injustice, their boastfulness. They seem to gain. But then as he's struggling with all this, and he's just in the honesty of his heart expressing that, in verse uh, 16, he, he writes, when I thought how to understand this, it was too painful for me. And it can be difficult when we seem like, how can that person be getting away with that? 
And it seems like they're benefiting. And perhaps you've experienced that. Maybe you have somebody that is in your life that you just look at and you think, how can they get away with that? They're dishonest. They treat people wrongly. Um, they're, they're, you know, boastful. They're arrogant. And it just, you struggle with it. But then Asaph says something that we need to remember. He says, though I, I thought how to understand this, it was too painful for me. Then he writes, until I went into the sanctuary of God. And then I understood their end. Listen, those who you might look at in that way, they're not getting away with anything. Will you realize that? They're not getting away with anything. And if they don't turn to Jesus Christ and repent and give their lives to him, the end of their way, and that's what Asaph is saying, till I went into the sanctuary of God, when I really got my focus off of them and I got it on the Lord, And I realize that they're not getting away with it, and their end is destruction is what it's going to be. And we need to remember that those who are boastful and proud and and come against God and come against you, who think that they're getting away with things, they're really not getting away with anything. And unless they repent and turn to Jesus Christ, the end of their way is destruction. And for you who are doing right, God sees you, and he is going to reward you for all eternity. Listen, your labor is not in vain, as Paul would write in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, that last verse. He says, you be immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, and know that your labor is not in vain. As you live for the Lord, as you're serving the Lord, as you're doing what is right, it is not in vain. And the Lord sees your work, and he's going to reward you for eternity. So here it was him struggling with all of this. And then as we continue in verse 4 of chapter 10, do you have eyes of flesh or do you see as a man sees? Are your days like the days of a mortal man? Are your years like the days of a mighty man? That you should seek for my iniquity and search out my sin, although you know that I am not wicked and there is no one who can deliver from your hand. So Job is just venting more frustration to God. In verse 8, your hands have made me and fashioned me in intricate unity. It reminds me of what David wrote in the Psalms when he says, you have formed me and fashioned me. Um, Here he's saying, I know that you made me, you fashioned me uh, in intricate unity. And the Lord has made us. Do you know why the Lord created you? We read in Revelation chapter 4 in that heavenly scene, that in the song of the 24 elders and the four living creatures that they're praising God, that they say that you are created for his good pleasures. The Lord made you. He created you. He knew all about you. He knew, knew you before the foundation of the earth. He made you, and he made you for his pleasure. His good pleasure, in other words, for his purposes. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, that you are his workmanship. Created for good works. The Lord desires to use you in a wonderful way. And he has a plan for you. And he desires for you to be used for his good pleasures. Will you realize that? So here Job says, I know, Lord, that that you made me and and, um, you you fashioned me. And um, verse 9, remember I pray that you have made me like clay. And will you turn me into dust again? 
Did you not pour me out like milk and curdle me like cheese? Clothe me with skin and flesh and knit me together with bones and sinews. You have granted me life and favor, and your care has preserved my spirit. So Job, you know, understood that God created him. So why would you afflict me, Lord? You sustain life. You preserve life. I know that I came from the dust, and I'm going to return to the dust. And verse 13, and these things you have hidden in your heart. I know that this was with you. If I sin, then you mark me. I will not acquit me of, and will not acquit me of my iniquity. If I am wicked, woe to me. Even if I am righteous, I cannot lift up my head. I am full of disgrace. See my misery. If my head is exalted, you hunt me like a fierce lion. And again, you show yourself awesome against me. You renew your witnesses against me and increase your indignation towards me. Changes in war are ever with me. So the mindset here, again, of Job, that you're against me, God. He's confused about God's character. And we can do that when we enter into times of trials and tribulations and grief. And again, I want to remind you that James chapter 5, verse 11 it tells us that Job saw in the end the mercy and the compassion of God. Listen, in the end of your trials, when the Lord is working, that you're going to see the mercy and the compassion of God. You keep looking to Him. Because we can begin to be confused about the character and the goodness of God when we're going through loss and when we're going through trials. We get confused. And that's what Job, he's just expressing his emotions here. But he is confused and, he, and he's expressing that. In verse 18, why then have you brought me out of the womb? Oh, that I had perished and no eye had seen me. I would have been as though I had not been. I would have been carried from the womb to the grave. Are not my days few? Cease, leave me alone, that I may take a little comfort before I go to the place from which I shall not return, to the land of darkness and the shadow of death, as a land that is as darkness, uh, as dark as dark as darkness itself, and as the shadow of death without any order, where even the light is like darkness. So Job asked God in verse twenty to leave him alone. Give me a break. He thinks that, you know, it'd been better if God wasn't involved. You know, I talk to people that feel that way. That they go through trials and difficulties and they think, I wish God would just leave me alone. It'd be better if I didn't have God in my life. And it's my hope and prayer that we would never come to that conclusion in our life. That it'd be better not to have God. It'd be better without God. And you see, I want God in my life. I want God protecting me and I want Him to, to be, you know, guiding me and in my life. I want to be in his hands because he is good and he has a purpose for me and he desires to work in my life, wonderful, to do exceedingly abundantly above all that I ask or think. So now chapter 11, as we go through chapter 11 quickly, so far is going to, to speak. And so far is the third uh, friend of Job to speak and he doesn't speak a lot in the book of Job, but he is very brutal. So Eliphaz was harsh. You know, Bildad was even more harsh. This guy, he really is harsh. He is really brutal. And it's almost like he has an angry tone. He, he says these things with wrath. Let's begin to look at it. It's in verse 2, he says, 
as he answers Job, as Job is pleading with God, he, he's expressing what we just read in the last couple chapters. But so far, he says that should not the multitude of words be answered? And should a man full of talk be vindicated? Should your empty talk make men hold their peace? And when you mock, should no one rebuke you? For you have said, my doctrine is pure and I am clean in your eyes. But oh, that God would speak and open his lips against you, that he would show you the secrets of wisdom, for they would double your prudence. Know therefore that God exacts from you less than your iniquity deserves. Man, this guy is brutal. He's really saying that your words are empty, Job. You need rebuking, verse 3. May God speak against you, verse 5. And know that you are nothing, Job, verse 6. And harsh of all is when he says to him, you deserve more of the judgment of God. How these words must have really, really hurt, you know, Job in hearing this. James would write in chapter 1, verse 20 of his epistle, that the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. You know, whenever that we feel like I'm going to really come down hard and I'm going to really be harsh on you, that we think that the wrath of God is the righteousness of man? In other words, as we continue here, that we need to be careful when we're ministering to others, that we're not just having the mindset of, this is what you need to know, and this is what I'm going to tell you. Rather than seeking God and saying, Lord, what is it that you would have me to say to them? How is it that you have me to minister to them? I understand that there are times where we talk with people that we have to say some pretty hard things, right? But what is our motivation? What is our attitude? Is it out of a desire for them to turn to the Lord, to, to know the truth of the Lord, that God wants them, when there's correction or rebuke, to repent and restore the relationship with the Lord and with others? And we're doing it because we care for them and we love them? Or are we doing it because I want them to see what I know? And I'm really going to show them. So far, it's kind of like a, a college professor that is very arrogant. And he's going to put down the freshman. I'm going to show you how smart I am. And, and, and it's you know me and kind of showing my knowledge and all this. This is the way he is. Just really harsh with an angry tone and a lot of of attitude that is here in this let's continue verse 7 can you search out the deep things of god can you find out the limits of the almighty they are higher than heaven what can you do deeper than sheol what can you know their measure is longer than the earth and broader than the sea you're nitwit job you're ignorant of god you can sense his pride which later he's going to be rebuked by god by the way and again Job, you need to know the depths, the height, the length of God's wisdom. And the implication that so far is given here is that I do. I do know it. Listen, no one can understand the depth and the height of God's wisdom. We gain God's wisdom from the Word of God. Certainly we do. But we cannot be arrogant enough to think that we know everything about God and everything about a person's situation, that we know their heart. Even Solomon, in his prayer dedication to the first temple, you remember he said, no one knows the depth of the heart except for God. God is the one that knows exactly that person's heart and the situation that's going on. So we need to be careful that we are, you know, 
seeking God and, Lord, how is it that you want me to minister to them your wisdom and your knowledge and your word to them? Because, Lord, you do know. And, Lord, I need wisdom and discernment in ministering to them. In verse 13, if you would prepare your heart and stretch out your hands towards them, if iniquity were in your hand and you put it far away and would not let wickedness dwell in your tents, then surely you could lift up your face without spot. Yes, you could be steadfast and not fear, because you would forget your misery and remember it as waters that have passed away and your life would be brighter than new day. Though you were dark, you would, not, you would be like the morning and you would be secure because there is hope. Yes, you would dig around you and take your rest and safety. Verse 19, you would also lie down and no one would make you afraid. Yes, many would court your favor, but the eyes of the wicked will fail and they shall not escape and their hope loss of life. You need to confess and repent and God will bless you, Job. And if you don't, he's going to strike you dead. Real nice friend, isn't he? So Job's going to answer him. In just chapter 12, real quick, just a couple more minutes, and then we'll finish up. He's going to answer his critics here, and he's going to do it for the next three chapters. We'll just look at chapter 12. But he answered and said, No doubt you are the people, and wisdom will die with you. But I have understanding as well as you. I am not inferior to you. Indeed, who does not know such things as these? So here Job has had it with these guys. You're coming off as know-it-alls, trying to figure it out, an infinite God, and that I have no understanding. And you're acting more like prosecuting attorneys rather than a friend that should be bringing comfort. And Job here is being a little bit sarcastic. If you were to die, will wisdom die, you know? As you go, you will die. All the wisdom of the world goes with you is what he's saying in verse 4. I am one mocked by his friends who called on God, and he answered him. The just and blameless who is ridiculed. A lamp is despised in the thought of one who is at ease. It is made ready for those whose feet slip. Verse 6, the tents of robbers prosper, and those who provoke God are secure in what God provides by his hand. Job is saying, I'm mocked by my friends, and you misunderstand me. I don't think these guys really knew Job. They're called friends. But here they're accusing him, you did something wrong, and they're going to keep this accusation up. They didn't see his character. They didn't see that he was upright and blameless. So here they're mocking him in a way, and they misunderstand Job. And Job was looking for compassion and comfort. And the two go together. Listen. You want to be a counselor? You want to bring comfort to somebody? then you need to have compassion. To be able to bring comfort to somebody, you got to have compassion and understanding. And as I've mentioned to you, to touch their hearts. And Job says in verse 6 here, your great wisdom doesn't apply in the real world. Robbers prosper. Those who mock God are secure. And then in, as we um, read in verse 7, but now ask the beasts and they will teach you, and the birds of the air and they will tell you, or speak to the earth and it will teach you. And the fish of the sea will explain to you. Who among all these does not know that the hand of the Lord has done this? And whose hand is the life of every living thing and the breath of all mankind? Does not the ear test words and the mouth taste its food? Wisdom is with age men and the length of days understanding. I want to close with this. That in creation as he says the power of God is known by the beasts and the birds. 
in Daniel chapter 5, when Daniel was addressing the king, he tells the king that God holds every breath that you take in his hand. When Paul was addressing the philosophers on Mars Hill in Acts chapter 17, Paul said, for him, we live and move and have our being. He holds every breath that we have in his hand, and in him, we live and move and we have our being. And we can trust in the Lord with our lives. If we can trust him with our salvation, you can trust him with your life. If he proved his love for you, that while we're yet sinners, Christ went to the cross for you, know that he's going to love you to the end. Amen? Amen. Father, we thank you. We thank you for these chapters of Job. And as we go through them and, and read it, and, and Lord, Job is going through difficulties. And we can have those same kind of feelings and struggles in our own lives as we, Lord, go through the trials of and loss and difficulties and affliction. But Lord, we do want to know not just your greatness, but your goodness. Lord, we want to know that you're not against us, but you are for us. And Lord, we want to remember that we want you, Lord, to keep us in your hands and under the shadow of your wings. And Lord, that eventually we are going to see the compassion and the goodness and the mercy that you desire to work in our lives and to show us. And Father, I pray most of all that we will remember that we don't have to try to always be gaining, trying to prove or trying to, to deserve approval in your love, that we have it. And you love your children. And Lord, out of that love, we want to respond and enjoy you and walk in that grace. And Lord, rejoice in it. And Father, just to, out of that love, live for you. A life pleasing. So Lord, I thank you for those of us who are here tonight. And I pray for if anyone's struggling with these kinds of, of thoughts. And, and um, Lord, that tonight would be a night of encouragement. And so Father, I pray that you take us all home that again in this season of thanksgiving, that we would be thankful for what Jesus has done for us, our mediator who came and died for our sins and rose again.